We're talking about halakhic activism today, and I just want to reiterate something I said last time, which is that when we talk about the kinds of halakhic decisions we make or we aspire to make, which are sometimes different things, um, we should say that uh, in a sensitive fashion, um, different parts of our halakhic decision-making process can be more and less sensitive. So just to, to put that at the beginning. Um, I should also say, like, we should pause for a second to think about what a remarkable conversation it is for us to be able to talk about what it means for us to dig through the sources of our own tradition to make decisions about the way we observe our religion. Um, and that is a kind of way of observing which I think um, is relatively rare among world religions in general, meaning to be able to have that kind of access and to kind of dig through the inner workings of your faith um, in the same way that any rabbi or other cleric might be able to and kind of develop a solution, I think is a pretty wonderful and pretty amazing thing. And um, I think there's something very Jewish about that. Um, that's another comment to start at the beginning. Um, the last thing is to say, there is a gap between what we do and what we aspire to do in terms of um, our halakh decision-making processes. Um, and so we should just be aware of that. And when we talk about it in this class, we should just kind of try to talk about if there are, is a difference between what we think we should do and what we actually do, then we should try to be sensitive to that. Um, that is because uh, one of the goals of today's class is to kind of give us an awareness of what it is that we are doing when we make halakhic decisions. Um, the reason that we're talking about that today before we talk about everything else is because we are going to be looking at some particular examples of halakhic decisions that we may or may not choose to make. These are decisions that are sanctioned by some parts of the Jewish uh, community those parts are sometimes orthodox, they're sometimes not orthodox. Sometimes they are uh, sanctioned by particular rabbis, but not necessarily by movements. Um, and sometimes they're only sanctioned by groups of individuals, but large groups of individuals. Um, so it's worth just thinking about and, and being somewhat conscious of what it is that we do, how do we make decisions, um, so that when we approach these texts, we can approach them and saying, well, that, not just to say that's nice and like it's nice to know these texts exist, but actually to say like, oh, maybe I could do something about that and what, what would I do about that if I was gonna do something about that? So the, that's one of the purposes of today, just to give us that kind of self-awareness. Um, there's a few other things that I think we will try to get time to talk about, um, but that is the main thing. Um, Another piece which I hope will come across is that halakhic activism differs by the kind of halakha that you're talking about. Meaning, um, and I'm gonna use halakhic activism in this sense of like making one's own halakhic decisions. Um, the kinds of decisions that you make in terms of your sexual practice, um, the, the way in which you make those decisions might differ quite radically from the way you decide whether or not to eat kitniot on Pesach, or whether or not you have a responsibility to move to Israel or uh, whether you think that a mechitza, um, whether you, you think that you can daven with mechitza, whether you think it's optional, whether you specifically will not. Um, or if you are a woman, whether you will count yourself in a minyan um, of various kinds. So there's a whole spectrum of here, and the, the kind of the content of the decision actually makes quite a bit of difference. Um, so just to keep that in mind. Um, if there are any questions, jump in whenever you want. Um, that's the basis. So, so now I want to ask you, so how do you make your halakhic decisions? Um, maybe you want to give an example of, like a, of a decision that you made recently, or a decision you wanted to make recently. How did you go about doing that? 
any kind of halakhic problem you had. Yeah, Ben. Yeah, so one that recently has struck me as kind of funny is um, shaving. And like, since reaching a point in my life when I decided to take on kind of a more um, halakhic uh, approach to many aspects of my life, like shaving not with a razor was just like not something that happened. Um, and I don't know if it's because I was like, I've been thinking about that lately, like, I don't know whether it's because I just never learned why or because it's like just something a father teaches a son and then you do that and it's like, you know, it's a way to honor the father or it's just like pure laziness or because it's a private practice uh, that's like so not, like that's such small potatoes that it doesn't really matter. So that, that's, that's one that I've been thinking about lately. Um, so how have you just been going about thinking about that? Like, is it something that you, are you pursuing it by looking at books, by talking to rabbis? A third no, option? it came up in conversation with a friend who had gone through like a very similar yeah. process, and, and you know, we just sort of mentioned it. I think your example is really interesting for two reasons. One is that uh, you talk about it as being a private practice, uh, meaning because of the halachot of shaving as they exist right now, um, men can appear clean shaven and they could be using razors, they could not be using razors and there's really no way to tell. So it's a, it's, it's a private thing in a way that perhaps in the past it was not. In the, in the past it might have, might have been more obvious how one was or was not shaving. Um, that's one thing. And the other thing is that you said that it's something which you learn, like a, it's something you learn at home, meaning your, your approach to the practice in some ways is dictated by um, the environment you grew up in and what you take to be, to be normal within the bounds of living a halakhic lifestyle. Um, and so I, I think that's actually interesting to think about in that what you're describing is uh, what I'm going to call in this class, what other people have called a uh, kind of mimetic authority. Uh, mimetic from the word mimesis, like to copy something. Um, and if you look at the first source in your source sheet, I uh, actually just want to give you like a short example of this. Uh, this is from an article by Chaim Soloveitchik, which you should read in its entirety. I think it's an excellent article. Uh, Chaim Soloveitchik is a professor at YU. Um, and so he says, to give a simple example, blessings over food, birkat hananin, is a classic area of mimetic tradition. The five basic brachot taught to children as soon as they begin to speak, and by the age of four or five, the recitation is already reflexive. Grade school adds a few refinements and pointers about compounds such as sandwiches or hot dogs, and their uh, and uh, sorry, and their things more or less stand for the rest of one's life, or at least so it stood in the past. There is no long. This is no longer so. In 1989, the halachot of brachot, sorry, the halachas, the halachas of by Yisrael <laughs> and Rodman, appeared as it matters appeared in both hardcover and paperback form, and has been reprinted three times in as many years. That is to say. So he's pointing out a change from what he perceives as a mimetic tradition. How do you observe brachot? Well, you do what you were raised to do at a very early age, and that's kind of the end of the story, to another way of thinking about a halacha and halacha decisions, which is to say, I look in the book. I look in halachas of brachas or some other book like that. Um, and so he's kind of documenting a change from mimetic to textual there. OK, so anybody else have an example of a halacha decision? Yeah. Um, so I normally wouldn't, for example, get into a car on Shabbat. Um, but recently, I traveled to a wedding on a Saturday afternoon by train. And my reasoning is, well, the rule isn't don't get in a train on Shabbat. You, you, know, you wouldn't travel on Shabbat because of a bunch of different reasons. And I looked at each of them individually, and I decided, well, I'm not paying for anything because I have a train pass. 
I'm not carrying anything because I'm getting on the train inside an A-roof and I can leave the pass on the train when I get off the train. I'm not operating the train. It's going that way anyway. It's kind of like a horizontal Shabbat elevator. So I like broke it down into these right. different components and decided it was something I was comfortable doing. So have you heard of people making similar decisions in the past? Like similar to that, like using public transportation? I don't know if I know anyone who would use public transportation but wouldn't use a car, for example, in Shabbat. Um, but I, I, I mean, I know people have approached decisions in the same way and have maybe tried to like retroactively justify something they were already doing. <laughs> ah, that's interesting as well. Right. Okay. So, so your approach is, is very much textual, and but it's textual in a different sense that uh, Chaim Soloveitchik is talking about, in that you're using the text actually to to make permissible something as opposed to kind of like. Um, bore down at, and, and look at the particular rulings for particular areas of an already existent law. Um, excellent. So anecdotally, I had a similar question. Um, the, it was the 20th anniversary of, sorry, 30th anniversary of Montreal's subway system a few years ago, and it was on Simchat Torah. And the, as a kind of celebration, they decided to have the entire system be free for one day, and that day was Simchat Torah. So the big question, can you use public transportation system then? Um, great. How about questions where you ask a rabbi? Anybody have experience with that? Want to share an experience? Or what is a situation where you think, hypothetically, that you would want to ask a rabbi's advice as opposed to looking in source material? I asked a rabbi once a question that was like, I was traveling the day before Pesach, and I didn't know like where do I where do I do the like feather and the candle? It was just like too complicated. It was going to be on a train all day, and by the time I got there, it was going to be like a certain time, and like it wasn't going to be at night. It was, it was like everything was just like not ideal, and and I so I had to ask because it was like I could try to look it up in a book. But it was just like too nuanced. It would be so much easier to be like to say to a rabbi like this is my situation. What do I do? So that's helpful. So I'd say so. One of the reasons that we ask rabbis is because even though maybe theoretically we could look up the information, it's, it's somewhat complicated, and maybe there's a time pressure involved, um, and the rabbi might know of uh, some answer, and parenthetically also maybe some more lenient answer than one actually knows about, so for sure. Yeah. Um, this is actually isn't me, but I have a friend who does vocal performance, and so when she was studying in Israel for the year, she um, really like spoke with a bunch of rabbis about and about what exactly that constraint is and exactly what it applies to. Um, and I thought that it, it was interesting that the rab, one of the rabbis that she spoke to was one that I respect very much and one who really respects halacha very much. And um, I think that part of what he did was really listen to her particular case and where she, saw where she was in life and, you know, like what she personally was, was involved in and kind of gave her um, his opinion based on that, which I think is another, um, probably another really important time to go speak with a rabbi when it's kind of case dependent. Excellent. And I think right, so the case dependency bit is really important. Uh, another area where um, I think asking a rabbi is, is kind of the um, recommended mode at certain orthodox circles is um, birth control, uh, questions about whether one is, when one is allowed to use birth control, where like, um, instead of looking at the books, people will often go to rabbis for advice in particular circumstances. Um, great. So I think that's a good sampling. Um, and maybe we can say that there are four different kind of ways of approaching decision making. Uh, one is a rabbinic model. I ask a rabbi for a question because um, maybe the rabbi's going to be lenient, maybe I don't have enough time, 
Um, maybe because the issue is too complicated for me. Maybe because of the kind of issue where I feel like I need the, the kind of authority that a rabbi brings to a situation in order to answer the question. Um, one is, as we talked about mimetic, um, you ask someone in your family, or you just have an intuitive sense about what is and is not halakhic behavior. I think, for example, a lot of the way that we observe Shabbat is based on our, our, our internal sense, um, especially, I think, for those who grew up um, religious, observant, um, what Shabbat is and is not supposed to be, and what is and not, is not supposed to look like. Um, I've heard many rabbinical students say that when they actually approach texts about Shabbat, they find the texts are somewhat different from what they expected, and that Shabbat is actually like much more difficult to keep than they uh, grew up understanding. Um, so that would be medic. Textual would be um, something that like, that Josh mentioned. Um, it could also be something simple. You know, give you an example. Um, uh, a few years ago, when I decided to make my own tzitzit, um, I wasn't sure exactly how to tie them, so I looked it up. Um, didn't ask a rabbi how to do it. Just like, you know. I found a source. I found sources to, to look at it. Um, and then I guess the final category, and this overlaps with the other three, is a kind of personal decision making. That as opposed to going to some other source, I kind of decide, uh, perhaps using text, I mean, perhaps even primarily using text, um, what I, I find to be the appropriate decision without any kind of attempt to, to base it on uh, ex existing um, protocol, existing precedent. Okay. Um, comments, questions about that part? You had something you want to say? Yeah, so just maybe this may be a fifth category. What about just the halachic decisions that you don't really get to participate in, right? If you go, if you live in a community that has one shul, like the decisions are in ritual practice and that shul are not your decision. They're not anything you're arguing <coughs> with anybody about. They're just forced on you. Is that, does that fit into one of your categories? Is it separate? So I think it's interesting. Um, so in a sense, what you're talking about, what you're bringing out, is that there is, um, halakh decisions don't always happen on a person-by-person -person level. They often happen on a communal level. I think it's definitely true. I think that's true perhaps even for most of the, the kind of the fabric of the basic contours of, of an observant life. Uh, at the same time, something which I think is going to come out is that while that may be the case, you are never absolved from making your own decision within that. Even if the community has decided something, that does not mean you are forced against your will to follow it as well. So one is always making a halakh decision, even though that decision might be strongly dictated by the decision in my community, especially if it's a community of one synagogue with one rabbi or whatever. Um, so you kind of never get around it. Okay. Sorry, is what you're saying, so what you're saying is even when a communal decision is made, you are making the personal decision whether to participate in it or not, and that's, so that's, the part that you're never absolved from? Exactly. Okay. Right. Um, so, meaning there's, all, there's two decisions happening. One is a communal decision, um, which again, a communal decision really means a group of individuals making a decision. Um, perhaps it might be reflected in initial policy or something, but it's still a communal decision. And the second is a personal decision, uh, whether to go along with that or not. Okay, great. Um, so let's look at some texts that kind of give us a sense of um, where uh, where, where Judaism has stood um, on this question. And the truth of the matter is, in kind of preparing for this year, it was somewhat difficult to find texts about it. There are texts, definitely, that exist that speak about decision-making processes. But I think one of the things that, that is kind of complicated about this is that um, the question of how one makes a halakhic decision is itself something which is learned. Uh, it's not something which you simply read in a book, but it is also part of one's culture. Um, and 
I think like, there would be there are certain cultures in which there are certain sets of rules about um, decisions that should be made by an individual or by a rabbi or through mimesis. Um, but those are kind of unspoken rules. So trying to find them in sources, I think, is sometimes difficult. But there are a few sources which I do think touch on them somewhat. So I'll give you one classic source. Uh, this is in source number two. Does someone want to read um, either, let's say in English, actually, for now? If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment between blood and blood, between thee and thee, and between stroke and stroke, even matters of controversy within thy gates, then shalt thou arise and get thee up unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt come unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge that shall be in those days, and thou shalt inquire, and they shall declare unto thee the sentence of judgment. And thou shalt do according to the tenor of the sentence, which they shall declare unto thee from that place which the Lord shall choose. And thou shalt observe to do according to all that they shall teach thee, according to the law which they shall teach thee, and according to the judgment which they shall tell thee thou shalt do. Thou shalt not turn aside from the sentence which they shall declare unto thee, to the right hand nor to the left. And the man that doeth presumptuously, and not hearkening unto the priest that standeth to minister there before that, the Lord thy God, or unto the judge, even that man shall die. And thou shalt exterminate the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear, and do no more presumptuously. Thanks. <coughs> I'm sorry for the stilted English, by the way. <laughs> I probably should have picked a more up-to-date translation. Um, so what does this text suggest about um, when you go to an authority to make a decision, to help in making a, what we'll call a halach decision? It's a very hard question. You gotta do what they say. You, okay, so you yeah. definitely have to do what they say. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, the things about this text that's interesting is um, picking out which is part of the kind of preamble to the rule and picking out what the rule itself is is somewhat complicated, meaning is the key text here that when someone tells you to do something, you've got to do it? Or is the rule that if you have this kind of conflict, then you must go to a judge, which can be somewhat different. Um, but so just start from the first verse. So like, what, what are these situations that you go to a, a judge for? Right? The judge sorry, um, that exists in those days. What kinds of situations do you go to him for? It seems like it's a last resort. It seems like when you can't figure it out yourself or when you don't know it yourself, then, then you go. Great. And I would say even more that um, it's when you and somebody else can't figure it out, in that it seems that this bein dam la dam, bein din la din, bein nega la nega, the, the language in the first verse of between x and x, between y and y, suggests that there is some kind of adversarial component, that you are in a conflict with somebody, um, and that that conflict needs to be resolved by someone who is neither of you. Um, I, don't know, I read I read more as if there's something that that in your own perception there are two competing things that you know and that may that may just be something that's sort of within yourself and within your understanding of the law. I'm also trying to understand what the Hebrew is. The Hebrew is weird. Kind of, so like you're reading it as, a, as more of a conflict of laws as opposed to a, a conflict with some other person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
I think that's also a possible reading. I especially um, like that reading because it's like the whole first verse is in the singular, right? So like if it's a conflict between two people, why wouldn't both of them be obligated, right? Like there's a personal, unless like both of the, each of them has a personal obligation, but, I, right. but this seems to be addressed to an individual. Yeah. So I really like that reading. Right. Um, I like it as well. What I would suggest is also that because it says between blood and blood, meaning suggesting a kind of criminal case. Bain Din Ladin, I think, is more difficult. Bain Negla Nega also suggests some kind of tort. Um, that these are cases which, which probably do involve some other party. Um, so what comes before this? this? Is this or is this in a context we're talking about? Uh, this is the context. Committee? This is the ruling. Yeah. But I mean, is it like, is there like, is this just a Is this in a more general section? It's about courts or about. I mean, so it's in the sequence of rules. Some of them are about courts and some of them are not. Yeah. I don't remember the exact verses that come before and after it. Yeah. Um, okay. So in this sense, so how would you read uh, the, when it says in verse 11 um, that you should not go right or left? What is it talking about? Let's assume in a divarashirik you look at you mean you small. What is that injunction supposed to say to you? Once you've received a ruling, you have to stick to it. Okay, great. So if there's a ruling, and it seems to be a ruling about some kind of specific <coughs> case, um, then one has to stick to it. And the verses which follow it um, further go on to elaborate that not only is that the case, but if someone then defers from that ruling, then they are in major trouble. So it's like a, it's a major offense to, to get, then go against the rulings that have been dictated there. Um, later on, that verse, verse 11, is taken to be a central verse in uh, supporting rabbinic authority. Um, and even the notion that their rule is correct, um, even if they're wrong, even if what they say is right is actually left and what they say is left is right, that one must still follow them becomes a, um, one way of understanding what it is to have rabbinic authority as kind of a separate entity that is self-supporting, that is um, self-validating. I mean, let's be clear, that's a pretty good verse for supporting one's own authority that one you know derives from the Torah, regardless of whether you end up being rabbis or Levites or whatever. Great. You, you, you're going to use that to say, well, you should listen to me. It says right here you should listen to me. For sure. And I'd say like, the entire book of Deuteronomy, of Devarim, um, supports this kind of, this is, is a good validator for a specific way of um, living life in the land of Israel, a specific vision of law. Um, it's been called by uh, Bernard Levinson, who's a Bible scholar. This is the first constitution, um, in that it kind of sets these rules out that are then um, kind of difficult to go back on because of the way they're written. Um, a classic example of this is um, how the book of Deuteronomy kind of excludes false prophets, right? Like, what, what, what prophet counts? A prophet that listens to this book. That's the prophet that counts. So it kind of disallows further revelation as a result. Yeah. <clears throat> the thing that makes it kind of um, untimely, even though the Torah is timeless, is that it's very specific about um, going to the Levites and going to the judge, singular judge, that shall be in those days. Um, and that definitely doesn't apply anymore, so it makes it kind of confusing what we are supposed to do with this verse today. Who Who is the judge? Is it your personal rabbi, or is it the rabbis of the Talmud, and 
why aren't there any more judge in these days who are like reevaluating that? Great. So I think so when we're talking about who makes decisions and we talk about that question having a kind of historical answer, um, it's very easy to overlook the fact that the rabbis are reading themselves into this verse. Um, the question of who is the shofet, who is this judge who you have today, is actually essentially important in trying to decide um, what, uh, who one goes to. If one goes to anybody, I mean, you could say, what if there is no judge in a particular time? Um, great. <coughs> so, does it, yeah. you, could, I mean, it could, you could also read it to support that those times when you should go to rabbis and accept ordaining authority are rare, and that for the most part, you should use your own judgment. Is another way of, of, of reading that, um, especially at the start. I, I'm what is why does it say it's yipal and mishpat? Like what is that actually? I don't. Does that really mean what the, the translation says? I think it, I think it's a pretty good translation of it. Yeah, but I, I think you're right in that um, this is suggesting a kind of exceptional circumstance. In that it's not describing how one decides what bracha to make on you know a bag of chips. Like it's talking about some kind of conflict which, which uh, causes one to go to some other power to have it settled. Great. Um, <clears throat> just because of time, I want to move on to the next source. Um, so here we have a, a rabbinic vision of what a decision-making process looks like. Um, this is not my translation. This is a translation of Stephen Fraud, who's a professor at Yale. Does um, so I want to read the English here? Uh, said Rabbi Yossi, uh, originally there was no contention in Machloket in Israel. Rabbi, the, rather, the court of 71 members was in the chamber of hewn stone, and there are other courts of 23 Sorry, members. The other court of 20. And the other court of 23 members were located in the towns of the land of Israel. Two courts of three members were in Jerusalem, one on the Temple Mount and one on the Rampart. When a person is in need of a ruling, he goes to the court in his town. If there is no court in his town, he goes to the town nearest his. If, if they have heard the proper ruling, they tell them. But if not, he and the most distinguished among them come to the court which is located on the Temple Mount. If they have heard the proper ruling, they tell them. But if not, he and the most distinguished among them comes to the court located on the rampart. If they have heard the proper ruling, they tell them. But if not, these and those come to the court which is in the chamber of hewn stone. The legal question is asked. If they have heard the correct ruling, they tell them, but if not, they take a vote. If those who declare the object to be impure are in the majority, they declare it impure. If those who declare it to be pure are in the majority, they declare it pure. From there, the law halakha goes forth and is disseminated in Israel. When the disciples of Shammai and Hillel, who did not serve their masters as needed, became many, contentions increased in Israel, and they became two Torahs. So what's the, what's the basis for authority in this text? Where does authority to make legal decisions come from? If you know it. <coughs> Sorry? Sorry, if you know it. So, if you know the proper ruling. Right, so I think you and Kevin are saying uh, the two parts of it. One is, if you, one is if you know the ruling, meaning if you have received something. And if you don't, then it goes uh, ultimately to a kind of democratic vote at the highest level of authority. Great. So this is the CJLS then? <laughs> this is the CGL. I mean, this is basically right. how the conservative movement operates, as far as I know. Right, so it's, it's very centralized yeah. at the first part. Um, although, what's curious is that this very centralized system um, breaks down in, in, the, in, the, in the very end. And there's a recognition that that source is going to break down at the very end. Do you have a question? Or are you waving to okay. I was waving to you. Okay. <laughs> um, 
Right, so at, at least once upon a time, not now, but once upon a time, um, this was the way the decision making happens. <coughs> the thing that's kind of interesting about it is that it's, it, the, with the, the way that it's set up, it seems that there's like one central, um, mo like a court with the most authority. Um, and it kind of seems like the U.S. court system, mm -hmm. the way that like you could build up and up, but um, they're not really court of appeals. It's like who's deciding at the lowest court if it's the proper ruling or, or not, not the person who got the ruling who gets to appeal to the next one, but whoever is judging and decides that they have the proper ruling. And, I don't know, that's kind of scary. It, it doesn't seem like there's really a check in place for if you've received the, the right ruling or not. Right. I don't know. It also seems based on humility that like the judges would be would be able to say, you know, even though they're in the highest position maybe or a very high position in their town, that they're gonna sit there, hear the, hear the case and say, we don't know, <laughs> ask someone else. Instead of, I think it would be so tempting to say, this is what we think, right. do this. Seems like all the lower courts are kind of just passing on precedent. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and actually, I think this week's Parsha is a, a good biblical uh, parallel for this. The idea that Moshe has these kind of local leaders who do some of the decision making for him. There, it's not clear. I think that they're always they have no autonomy here. I think it's pretty clear that the lower courts have no autonomy. Um, the difference being that here, there's a model of at the top level at least, uh, you can kind of. Um, exit the um, the world of precedent or the world of received tradition, and at least start talking about um, new rulings and new decision makings. But the notion is at least that this only happens at the very highest level. On all other levels, there is a kind of body of tradition which individuals may or may not have received. A court has a responsibility, whether or not this is realistic, to say that they don't know the answer to a question, uh, and then pass it, pass it on out. Um, great. Um, at the last portion of this, when the Torah becomes two Torahs, um, I think this notion is then expanded upon in the Talmud. And the notion that Hillel and Shammai are um, both valid Torahs, that they are two Torahs, but this isn't a diminishment of Torah, but actually, um, these and these other words of the living God, um, suggests that there is a kind of movement um, from this centralized tradition plus a little bit of uh, voting um, model to a model in which there is uh, a multiplicity of rulings. Uh, there's a kind of, um, there are several rulings that can exist at the same time and they exist around particular individuals. Um, so we go from like, this kind of national, like there's one message to one in which there are several different ones. I think this is interesting to point out in that the mission of the Tosefta here recognizes that the way that halachtisans are made changes quite a bit. It changes over time, and it doesn't go away. Meaning, the, the Tosefta doesn't suggest, well, now that this first model doesn't exist anymore, now we can't make any decisions ever. It simply suggests there's a new way of making decisions. Um, and so I think, thinking about how decisions today, this is important to keep this in mind as well, in trying to evaluate, you know, how many Torahs do we have today? Um, it's probably more than two. <laughs> probably quite a few more than two at this point. Um, it, it also seems like there's a linear um, relationship being made in terms of like originally that there was this kind of idea of like one 
one way of solving the problem, but as the disciples became many, there needed to become multiple Torahs to address the multitude of disciples. So maybe it's a question about um, supply, that there's, like, there's her demand, there's this need for more decision making. Yeah. Right, because this is actually, it devolves on a very few people in the first model. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's only so many people who are involved in the decision making process. Um, yeah. I mean, part of it I mean, as also, well. I mean, the people of Israel were at one point Right. Um, so, so far, most of what we've seen is um, rabbinic authority. We haven't looked at textual authority, really. This is all um, uh, appealing to living rabbinic figures who may or may not have traditions of their own. Um, Chaim Soloveitchik in this article, which we talked about before, Rupture and Reconstruction, suggests that this model has changed quite a bit, again, at the end of the 19th century, and then again over the course of the 20th century, um, especially as a result of the Holocaust. And so what he says in source number four, um, it is no exaggeration to say that the Ashkenazic community saw the law as manifesting itself in two forms, in the canonized written corpus and in the regnant practices of the people, regnant. Custom was a correlative datum of the halakhic system, and on frequent occasions, the written word was reread in light of traditional behavior. So mimetic authority is not simply um, the handmaiden of text. It actually is its own independent source of authority. However, this dual tra tradition of the intellectual and the mimetic laws taught and laws practice, which stretch back for centuries, begins to break down in the twilight years of the author of the Shulchan Aruch, that's Rabbi Yechiel Mechel Epstein, so he died in 1908. Sorry, the Aruch Did I say Shulchan Aruch? Yeah, Sorry. I think so. In the closing decades of the 19th century, the change <laughs> is strikingly attested in the famous code of the next generations, the Mishnah Brurah. Uh, that's the Chavetz Chaim's code. Chavetz Chaim dies in 1933. This influential work reflects no such reflective justification of established religious practice, which is not to say that it condemns perceived practice. Its author, the Chavetz Chaim, was hardly a revolutionary. His instincts were conservative and strongly inclined him towards some post-facto justification. The difference between his posture and that of his predecessor, the author of the Aruch HaShulchan, is that he surveys the entire literature and then shows that the practice is plausibly justifiable in terms of that literature. His interpretations, while not necessarily persuasive, always stay within the bounds of the reasonable. And the legal coordinates upon which the Mishnah Bura plots the issues are, are the written literature and the written literature alone. So that is to say, whereas previously, the Aruch HaShulchan recognizes and tries to correlate um, actual living practice with texts, the Mishnah Bura leans more towards the text. Um, the written tradition is really ultimately the basis of authority. The meta tradition should perhaps uh, correspond to that, but the weight is now kind of tilting towards the textual side. Um, and what he says uh, later on in this article is that, um, especially in the kind of this very serious break of tradition that is the Holocaust, um, the textual side has only gained more authority and more and more authority afterwards. And so that we are living in a world today where his, the example he uses in the article that whereas previously you would have said, you know, how dare a rabbi say that this thing isn't kosher? My mother cooked this way, and her mother cooked this way, and her mother cooked this way. Whereas now, um, there is more of a tendency in the Orthodox community to tilt towards, well, what does the book say? The books are real authority, and it's possible my grandmother and great-grandmother were wrong the entire time, um, because it, what the books say matters. Um, so I bring this text, first of all, again, it's a, it's a great article. Definitely read it. Uh, the footnotes, even the footnotes are amazing, uh, as with all civil Um but it's important to point out because, again, to, to go back to the previous point, there's a historical element to this. Historically, which kind of halakhic decision-making 
methods we use change over time and the change have, have changed pretty dramatically in the past hundred years. Yeah. And I think also uh, just to bring out a certain point about um, why he says this happens with the Holocaust that like not only can you no longer say, well, how can you say that my mother and grandmother and great-grandmother got this wrong anymore because because there's been a cutoff of generations because of, um, like, just because of the, the like, factual reality of right, right. the Holocaust. That, Definitely. like, there's no longer that mimetic tradition at all. And so, and so I think that can also be applicable maybe to um, situations where people don't have a mimetic tradition either because they didn't, people didn't grow up observing a particular thing or it just wasn't relevant at the time and later became relevant. Great, I think that's a really good point. Um, and it's, it's definitely worth pointing out, just like talking about um, um, the situation as it exists today, that um, not everyone has a tradition and some traditions um, are stronger or weaker than others. And so it's not just historically, but even like within the per one's personal history. Uh, the sense of mimetic tradition can be more or less strong, and that can be a strong incentive to push towards texts or to push towards rabbis. I mean, one of the things that could happen is that you then say, well, this rabbi is my mimetic tradition now. He's, he's going to help me. Um, great. So then going on to the next source, um, one of the things that I think that um, Rabbi Soloveitchik brings out is this sense that the texts themselves um, can be read in various ways. Um, that there is, there, the text exists in a certain way, um, but the texts themselves are not kind of sufficient um, to tell us everything halakhically. There is a gap between the halakha as it exists in the text and as it exists um, among individuals. Um, and this is something which I think, um, I think Alexa pointed out last class, this notion that there are 49 ways to go, to, to say something is pure, 49 ways to say something is impure. And this is in the source number five, Midrash Hulim, which we're not gonna read inside. Um, what it suggests, and there are versions of it that are earlier than the 11th century as well, um, that everything that, that God gives, it's not written chatichin, clear cut. Instead, um, there are 49 arguments for reading something in one way and 49 arguments for reading something in a diametrically opposed way. That is to suggest halakhic sources are undetermined. They do not have enough in them to tell you what the particular ruling is one way or another. It requires some kind of input um, to move it beyond that. So, this, this text, I think, suggests that texts are not enough. Uh, texts have to exist always alongside some kind of tradition or some kind of rabbinic authority. Um, this, is, I think, is a really pretty profound thing to say. Um, the texts are not enough. It's something else which I think in the next source uh, comes out. This is really, I think, fascinating one. Um, the Go'onim, um, there was a response to the Go'onim. The Go'onim are um, the kind of rabbinic sages who live after the Talmud but before the medieval ones, so they're like approximately, I don't know, 650 to um, 1100 um, in Iraq, mostly. And so there's a question that comes to one of the Goniam, I actually don't know who it is, I think it's anonymous, um, where somebody in, in the community suggests, says, I have these students, and they found this, they found this piece of Talmud, they found in, uh, in Bavli Psachim, Mem Ted Bet, that there's a bunch of brightoed, a bunch of Mishnaic sources that say you can do all kinds of nasty thing to Amayaratsim, ignoramuses, Jews who are not like so up on their textual skills, including that you can take their money. So they're like, hey, look, I found this text that can do that. And they started to do this. And so this is one of the Goanim kind of responding to this community saying, uh, no, you can't. Mm -hmm. um, 
even though it says explicitly in a Brita that you can't, meaning it should be black letter law. And so he says, you explain that you have heard that some of the students there rely upon chitzonot, spritehot, and permit themselves to take money from an amaretz, themselves. These are not concerned with issues of isur veheter, but where one, must, where one must say definitively, this is the halacha, or this is not the halacha, but rather topics concerning permissible behavior. That is to say, you can't just read text flat out. It matters what you're talking about. If you're talking about what is kosher, what's not kosher, that's one thing. But if you're talking about how to treat individuals, then even though the text might look exactly the same, it's the same color ink, even so, you have to know that these have to be read differently, have to be read with a little bit more sensitivity. And so you need some help with approaching these texts. Um, and it is like the laws of Derech Eretz. There's actually a book, Hilchot Derech Eretz, which tells you all kinds of things, like how many times you should sip from a cup before you finish whatever liquid is in the cup, all these kinds of rules of etiquette. So it's more like that, in that this isn't like black letter law. It's not like you, know, you have a demerit point that you have to you know, get forgiveness for on Yom Kippur if you do it wrong. It's simply part of uh, a moral code. Further, the chitzonot are within a story about the disgracefulness of Amaretz, meaning the context in which these bright appear is more anecdotal than it is legal. And they are, at the end, hyperbolic. It's just like, ah, oh, this is what we think of the Amaretz. We don't actually think you should do this, but this is what we think about them. This is what we would like to do to them. Um, again, another suggestion that texts themselves are not sufficient. Texts have to, have to exist along with rabbis, have to exist along with some kind of living authority. Um, questions about that piece? The distinction of rabbi, the, the anecdote, like, is the same as the, like, Agada versus Halakha distinction, or is there something else that's going on? Um, I think it's Agada versus Halakha. Yeah, that's what he's trying to point to. Which is interesting, right? Like, he's pointing out, you know, it's in the Talmud, and it, you know, but it was put in a particular context, meaning the Talmud didn't want it to be treated as legal, um, or not legal in the same way as Yisur Vahetar is legal. <clears throat> this seems like a really silly question, and I, I, I think it is, but um, did, the, did the writers of the Talmud know that they were compiling law that would be followed forever? It's not a, it's not a bad question, it's an excellent question. Uh, the short answer is there is no short answer. Um, there, I think there's two questions. One is, did they know that they were compiling? And the other question is, did they know that they were compiling law? Um, I think for both of those questions, it's far from clear. Um, it's far from clear that the Talmud is meant to be a legal code. It takes actually centuries for it to be treated as a legal code. The Go'onim, as evidenced by this text, for example, are not treating the Talmud as the Shulchan Aruch. They're not treating it as like something you must follow in all instances. Um, so it's very much not clear. Um, if you're interested in that question, uh, Professor Tali Fishman, he teaches at this university, has simply has recently written a book, written, yeah, written a book um, that kind of answers that question, answers how that development took place. Um, great. One of the other things that comes out in this text, I think, is that texts are dangerous. Reading text is a really dangerous thing to do, and one of the arenas where this comes out quite a bit is in the question of the printing press, meaning. Up until the development of the printing press, texts are pretty rare, uh, certainly for the common folk. And as a result of that, um, rabbis don't need to worry so much that their congregants, their community members, are going to find the book, going to answer a halakhic question by themselves. They will be forced, kind of, to be in a mimetic tradition. And so what you find, which is very interesting, is that um, with the development of the Shulchan Aruch and the printing press, right, the Shulchan Aruch and the printing press kind of like happen close together, that there's this question both about 
how can you say that this, that is, this is a halakha for everybody? And second, how dare you publish this? If you publish this, you will destroy local authority. You will destroy, um, and you will have all these crazy traditions which come out of the Shulchan Aruch. And so um, there's a lot of, especially Ashkenazi authorities, who are very worried about this. And one is in source number seven, Rabbi Chaim ben Betzalo. I apologize that the Hebrew is so bad, it's so hard to read. But he writes this long polemic against, against publishing um, halachic treatises. Here he's actually not talking about the Shulchan Aruch, he's talking about a book by the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Ezerles, called the Torah Chatat. He says, this is parable. All who derive teaching only from the books of latter-day authors, this is the bottom of page five, are like a pauper who received much charity from many wealthy people. Grain from this one, wine from this one, food from this one, clothes from this one, until he had received more than enough. Another pauper came and seized in the first pauper's hand all these things which the wealthy had showered him. And the second pauper considered the first to be the richest of them all and asks him for sustenance. This fool does not know that the first pauper's bread is the bread of affliction, lechem oni, that he is only that which the wealthy have showered him. So what's the parallel, right? It's suggesting, like, we have these books that are coming out these days, books like the Ramah, books like the Shulchan Aruch, and they are paupers. They don't know anything in themselves. They have begged everything that they know from older books, and those older books are the wealthy ones, our venerable ancestors. But if you just come across the Shulchan Aruch, you're not going to know that. You're going to think, oh, the Shulchan Aruch is wealthy in its own right. It's not a borrowed book. Um, and so you will rely on it. You will kind of ask for it. You will beg from it in a way that you would not normally beg from a pauper. You would approach it as if it was wealthy, quote unquote. Um, and so you will end up kind of stopping at the Shulchan Aruch, stopping at uh, the Ramah, and not go back to the older sources and kind of ignore those. This is like, and so, first of all, I love the metaphor. I think it's amazing. Um, but it also suggests like, that there's this concern already with the printing press, with this kind of um, pu this, uh, proliferation of knowledge. And I think we have to think about this again in the age of the internet, uh, when knowledge is even more uh, prolific, when sources are more accessible. Um, there's this sense of what's going to happen now that sources are at everyone's fingertips. Um, and I think what this kind of suggests for us is that there is this imperative not simply to stop at the first and most accessible source that we see, but actually kind of delve into the tradition. We actually have to use some kind of um, historical analysis, I can't really say, to get a sense of, well, what was this borrowed from, literally? Well, where did that come from? And as a result, there's this sense of like historical context which has to come into this. Yeah. So one thing that just kind of struck me as problematic about that argument is that I, I was thinking of it because like a lot of physicians and dentists complain about the internet and the fact that patients are coming in with all this new knowledge that they feel empowered by and they kind of come in with their printout and they show it to their provider and they're just like, this is what's wrong with me. And they feel like very empowered by it and it really just irritates physicians and dentists like no end. But like the a problem with that is that there actually are changes in knowledge that are occurring, like co-emergent with the increase in access to text. So like it's possible that what the internet is providing in terms of the most recent scientific developments on something is actually an improvement over the knowledge of a particular local provider. And I think that I'm trying to like make the analogy back to like, you know, 18th century um, sources, but like, you know, I do think that there's something about like contemporary sources versus like the more ancient sources in terms of like 
contemporary understandings of. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, and I think it's a great analogy. I think like the medical analogy is really apt. Um, it's possible even that a kind of, uh, ner there's a kind of nervousness in this text that maybe our congregants, maybe un others will kind of approach us with sources which we didn't know about because of the printing press, certainly because of the internet. Um, yeah. I also I wonder how far back you have to go to say that you found the original wealthy source because I don't know when you would stop um, and to think that there was so much oral history before anything was even written down like do we have to go back and be the ones to have spoken with God to say that we actually know I just feel like there there was a reason why things were written down, and maybe those original sources that we could even, like if we were to say we would go all the way back there, those weren't even really the original sources. So um, I guess it's hard to balance the authority that we have vested in the written text, and then to say that it kind of peters out doesn't always make sense for, for reasons that Kara right? brought up. Um, I guess also it's just hard to know, like, when do you know that you've gone far enough back that it's the most authoritative source? Right. I think what he would say is that you're not simply looking at texts, that you should be looking both at texts and also talking to rabbis. Um, uh, meaning, as the previous sources have kind of spoken about as well, the texts themselves are never enough. There has to be some kind of, like, human interaction at some point. Um, so even if you go back to the Torah, even if you go back to... Like if you look at every search, you've done like a Barilan search and you found like every possible source, that's still not gonna be enough. Yeah, Ben. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so that's the Vikuh Chaim, name of the source. Um, again, I think it's really great. Uh, I think the other suggestion would be here. So I think there's a kind of a couple ways to read this. One way is to say, well then you really can't look at text. Like us here in this room, we are gonna be looking at text and trying to piece together a puzzle and try to figure out um, kind of halachic approach. So it's possible to read the Vikuach Mayim Chaim is saying, like, it's exactly not what you're supposed to do. You have to go to rabbis. Um, I think there's another way of reading it, which is the way um, I would like to read it. I also think is kind of, is in a sense more true uh, to the Vikuach Mayim Chaim given uh, the status of rabbinic authority as it exists today, which is that um, one has a responsibility both to talk to current rabbinic authorities but you also have a responsibility to not simply look at the black letter law, to kind of examine it and turn everything over as much as possible. And so you don't simply find the sources that kind of work for you or the ones that are most accessible, but you look at all of the sources. You try to develop a full-bodied approach. And in that way, in that way to, use, to use Kari's analogy, maybe uh, we can think about this as not simply like the dentist confronting the guy who found some source on the internet, but the dentist versus the aspiring dentist, meaning like, from what I've heard, like dentists and doctors like like sometimes like to talk to their patients, sorry, to their um, to med school students or dental school students about like what's going on because they're part of a community as well. They're not coming from the outside, but they're they're part of something. Um, and in that way, um, this is not kind of an attack, but it's part of like a unified endeavor uh, to kind of approach these traditions as being part of a mimetic tradition as well. Um, we only have a few more minutes, so I want to get through the next two sources. Um, the one authority that I have seen who explicitly um, calls for autonomous legal decisions is Rabbi Nathan Lopez Cardozo. Uh, I think he's actually a descendant of Spinoza. Um, fun footnote. Uh, he's still alive today. Um, 
And so he wrote this article a few years ago in which he calls very strongly for autonomy in halakha decision-making. He says in source number eight, we must realize that Judaism is an autonomous way of life. While the need for conformity within the community must constantly be taken into consideration, ultimately man is expected to respond as an individual to the Torah's demands. Each human being is an entire world and no two human beings are identical in their psychological makeup, religious needs, or experience of God. One can only encounter God as an individual. What, after all, is the purpose of my existence if not to relate to God differently from my neighbor? To imitate what others do in their service of God is to demonstrate that there is no reason for me to have been born. The overwhelming need for human distinctiveness is demonstrated by the fact that no Jew received the Torah or heard the voice of God at Sinai in a similar way as the Maharshal observed. The need for more halakhic autonomy is not for the sole purpose of adapting Judaism to the spirit of modern times, but also to make Judaism more authentic and true to its own spirit. While the, sorry, while the necessity for communal conformity often made it difficult for Judaism to emphasize the need for personal autonomy, um, I think this goes to what Ben was talking about before, the difficulty experienced by so many young people today may propel this matter to the forefront of our concern. What I like at the end, what he says in that last sentence, the difficulty experienced by so many young people today, is to suggest that this is also part of our kind of historical landscape, in that um, there is a real concern about what will it mean if young people do not feel that they have personal autonomy in decision-making. That might mean that they kind of just chuck the whole thing, they don't make any decisions whatsoever. Um, and he's saying that this is actually, this is not just a, a, a kind of side point, but it's actually central to the way we decide uh, how halakhic authority should be made in the same way that, this is me now, in the same way that the presence or absence of the Sanhedrin or the presence or absence of Sephardic and Ashkenazic communities or the presence of absence of the internet is part of our decision-making process. Questions about whether people are going to be interested in observing at all um, is also part of the question. I want to skip and go back to the second part of what he says in a minute. Um, just to kind of up the ante a little bit, which is to say, um, as I kind of alluded to before, that in a sense, we are always making halakhic decisions, in that whether or not the sources that we've seen presented as though we, as individuals, make halakhic decisions, the truth of the matter is we are making them all the time. Um, and the best source that I know to talk about what it means to be always having to make new decisions is existential philosopher and devout atheist, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, he's on the next page. Um, Jean-Paul Sartre, 20th century French existentialist philosopher, lover of Simone de Beauvoir, etc., etc., etc. So just to present it, because I only give you a part of this. He was, uh, I think, during World War II, a uh, French student came to him and said, I have this dilemma. Um, my mother uh, is, not, is, is, is ill, and she wants me to stay here. But I kind of want to go off um, and fight. So what do I do? And in kind of reflecting on this student, Sartre suggests, well, the student really can't go to anybody for help, because even in deciding who to go to for help, one is already making a decision. And I think if you, if you think about like um, um, uh, sock shopping, like a person like going around trying to find a lenient opinion, I think this really rings true. Um, what he says towards uh, on the third last line on page seven, you may say that the youth did at least go to a professor to ask for advice. But if you see counsel from a priest, for example, you have selected that priest. And at the bottom, you already know, more or less, what he would advise. In other words, to choose an advisor is never left to commit oneself by that choice. So one is always making a decision already. You really can't get out of that. And I think like that's an important thing for us to think about as well, that 
we are in a sense, as Sarah would say, we are like, radically free. We are always making decisions. And it's really a question of knowing that we are making those decisions, which way do we go? How do we make that decision um, given that? Um, that is a very scary thought to suggest that we are always making decisions. And I find some comfort in the second part of what Rabbi Cardozo says um, to turn back a page, which is um, in the first full paragraph on page number seven, he suggests that one possible kind of um, uh, thought that can go through our minds, one way of approaching this radical freedom that we all have is to think about Yirat Shemayim as a kind of guiding principle, a fear of heaven, a kind of um, subservience in that way. And he says, it is impossible to discuss any of these issues without a deep commitment to Yirat Shemayim. No motive other than Yerat Shemayim may guide us. It is the same Yerat Shemayim which forces us to ask these questions and propose possible solutions. Denying their urgency would be a serious dereliction of our duty as religious Jews. Living a, gen sorry, living a genuine Jewish life is hard work, and the revisions I suggest require hard work. Right? This is not something you can't just pick up a Shulchan Aruch. You have to go to rich people. Young people must be sure that they are familiar enough with Talmudic texts to make the autonomous decisions they seek. Our young people will only value Judaism when it is at least as challenging as demanding as all the other disciplines they study. In fact, it may need to be more challenging since it is a lifelong involvement which requires constant attention even to the sanctification of daily trivialities. There are no shortcuts. For many of them, Judaism will become a joyful experience because it demands sweat and discipline while its reward is deep meaning and a strong notion of mission and holiness. Okay. Um, it's okay, we'll take five minutes just for questions, comments. You have to go. That's okay. <clears throat> you saying that Yerat Shemaim is the answer to the question of how do we deal with constant decision making. I'm not sure that's the only answer. I mean, we, you know, we're not approaching Judaism in a vacuum. And to say that Yerat Shemaim, which is a you know Jewish principle, to is the only way to approach the, you know, the question of how do we always make these Jewish decisions. It's one answer, but maybe the other answer is the moral compass that we've developed over the course of our lives mm -hmm. from whatever sources, Jewish and otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that seems like, you know, from first principles, as good a basis for making these decisions as a purely Jewish one. How, for you, how do you differentiate between those two things? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there is a difference, but like... I don't, I mean... Because I don't think, and I, don't, I think you would agree that they're not entirely mutually exclusive. No, they're not. And like, you know, I don't know where my sense of right and wrong has come from. I can't identify particular sources. Certainly Judaism's a huge part of that. Judaism's been a huge part of my life. But there's a lot more to my life, too. You know, my, where do my parents get their sense of right and wrong from? And also not just from Judaism. That's right. Like, and, you know, that can drive my, you know, who I seek counsel from or how I make decisions as much as a purely Jewish perspective can. Right. Um, I don't know how he would answer the question. I think it's a good question. Um, I think one possibility is that the notion of Yerat Shemayim has to include all of those things. And that Yerat Shemayim is not simply conceived as a relationship between you and God alone, but that relationship also involves other people. And that is that one's sense, one's relationship with God also has an ethical element, an interpersonal element. Um, but I think it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, I think building off of that, I mean, yeah, both of these are fairly on the very individualist end text, not such a surprise for Chartres. I think it's it's potentially more of a surprise for, for Jewish source. I mean, I think that there's both obviously very traditional 
uh, Redux uh, sources that are starting from a perspective that the community or the family is a fundamental building block and that you know, would reject this not just because of its view of Halakha, but because of its view of the individual as the decisor of Halakha. And there are also non orthodox I mean, you know, I think Reconstructionist thought is largely a, is very much communal, a communal Halakha process that is not, that is a non-Orthodox and, you know, and, and, and less rooted in tradition, but still accepts the community as the basic level of, of decision making and the basic level of, of you know, yeah, visible decision making. So I, I think you know that's, a, that's an interesting assumption. Right. Um, I would just repeat again that um, I think the point that Sartre is making is that it doesn't matter what you claim your level of decision making is. That might be true as well, but there is always a lever, a level beneath that. That is always a personal level. Um, meaning he, he's he's not arguing again. This is how we should make decisions. He's arguing this is how we do make decisions. This is how we always must make decisions. There's no getting around that. Um, my sense is that, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that I think that speaks to us living in the 21st century on a college campus. Um, that there's a sense like we do make individual decisions. I don't know that it would speak to everyone. I don't know that it would speak, and certainly in other time periods. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I sort of respond to, or participate in the discussion that, that Josh started. Um, and I, I just go the other way on this one. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's entirely possible to live a good and decent life, even a good and decent Jewish life, without your Shemaim, but I don't think it's possible to live a halachic life without your Shemaim. And if that isn't the guiding force, if, if there isn't some you know, sincere fear of something kind of beyond and other than ourselves and what we can see immediately, then I, I just don't, I don't think that halacha is ever going to be like the real way we're making a decision. Other questions, other comments? Okay, there's more, but I think we'll stop here. Thank you.